You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. My name is Clay Newcomb, and I'm the host of the Bear Hunting Magazine podcast. I'll also be your host into the world of hunting, the icon of North American wilderness, the bear. We'll talk about tactics, gear, conservation, but we'll also bring you into some of the wildest country on the planet chasing bear. On this episode of the Bear Hunting Magazine podcast, we're in Manitoba, Canada at Deer Camp, and I get to sit down with my good friend and mountain hunting mentor, bear baiting partner, James Lawrence of Mena, Arkansas. James is 70 years old and he's been hunting public land and hunting wilderness areas in Arkansas since he was a kid. He's got some absolutely fascinating stories about the way they used to hunt, how they used to go in on horseback in these wilderness areas, how he would uh, carry out deer in the mountains. And uh, it's, it's a phenomenal podcast. We talk about the real-time hunt that we're on, James kills a nice buck and he tells the story, but then we go back into the 1970s and 80s and even back to the very first deer that James ever killed back in the day before big bucks were cool. He killed a 160-inch deer in the mountains when he was 14. Man, you're going to enjoy this podcast with my good friend James Lawrence. So it's October the 31st, and we are in Manitoba, near Grandview, Manitoba, which Grandview is about a third of the way up the province of Manitoba. Me, James Lawrence, and my father-in-law, Steve Schultz, drove up from Arkansas. It's about an 18-hour drive. Drive wasn't too bad, was it, James? Drive was good. The ride was good. I didn't drive. Yeah. I got to ride. You got to ride. Uh, we, it's, about, it's about 18 hours from northwest Arkansas. James drove a little bit further than that. But we're up here with Tom Ainsworth, and we're whitetail hunting. And what's kind of bittersweet to me just a little bit 
is that me and you left some stellar Arkansas deer hunting to come up here to Man- Manitoba, which is, there's stellar deer hunting up here, but I'm going to tell you what I mean. The rut is not happening here, but back home, you've always told me, James, that that muzzleloader season in Arkansas in the 20s of October, they're in the Washita's, and it's proven true for me up in the Ozarks too. I mean, bucks are chasing, they're making sign, they're making scrapes, they're making rubs, they're responding to calls. I mean, it's just, it's when you want to be in the woods. We've had this hunt planned for at least a year. I think on the way back from Manitoba last year, I I bet within two days of being home is when I called you and said, hey, you ought to come to Manitoba with us because I knew that Steve and I were going to come back. And I said, you ought to come to Manitoba with us. That's when you sent the picture of the kill last year. Yeah. How could I refuse something like that (laughs) when you're out in the field with a big buck? Yeah. Man, for for us Southerners – and, and hunting in is tough, and, and describing us as Southerners isn't really, it doesn't give the full picture to someone who doesn't know where, where we live. We live in western Arkansas in the mountains. We're not in high deer density areas. We're in the Ozark and Washita Mountains. I mean, you grew up your whole life hunting in places where you'd go hunt a day and it would be a success to see a deer. That's and true. I mean, that's the kind of hunting. And we're going to get there. And so what we're going to talk about today is we're going to talk about this hunt that we're just on because we can't hardly talk about anything else because we're in camp. We're in Whitetail Camp in Manitoba. But what I really want to talk to you about is back home, hunting back home, and your rich, rich history of hunting in the mountains. And, man, James is a is a master mountain hunter, truly is. And so... That gives us a starting point, though, to talk about us being here and why this is such a unique experience to come all the way up to kind of southern Manitoba. And this is crop ground. I mean, that soil is unbelievable. It's unbelievable to think that there's coming out of Arkansas where you're used to shooting a 30-yard, 40-yard shot. Coming up here where you've probably got uh, an average of 100 or 120 minimum, uh, it's a shock. Yeah. I wasn't expecting it. Yeah. It's a good shock. Um, yeah. To see this kind of country, I never dreamed of hunting in a place like this where the deer's as big as they are compared to our deer at home. Yeah. Um Coming from a thirty-yard shot to possible three hundred-yard shots, what's hard to yeah hard to adjust. You can to. get shots as long as you've got gun yeah. for a shot. You certainly can. Yeah, you certainly can. And so, the muzzleload season—you think you're limited, but the muzzleloaders today. Uh, I started out with an old Kentucky kit gun. It's mm. all you need in Arkansas with thirty-yard shots. You know, thirty-five, yeah. forty. Um, they've done a lot better with guns the the rifling uh, the modern muzzleloaders just just as accurate as any gun you can have yeah they're pretty incredible so to describe where we're hunting this is this is ag ground but we're butted up against the duck mountain 
National Preserve, I believe is what it is. I mean, it's basically a block of national forest, about a 60-mile it's 60 miles north and south, and I think it's 30 or 40 miles east and west. And we're backed up to it. Backed up yep. to it. Tom has, I, I don't want to say exactly how many acres he has, thousands? I mean, at least, I mean, well, ac- in the, access in, to thousands of yes. private land acres. Yes. Yeah, thousands of acres. And his, his, his home place where he lives literally backs up to the Duck Mountains. And so behind his alfalfa field that's in his backyard is 60 miles of what these Canadians call bush. Bush. And so, I mean, this is like the first block of agriculture coming out of the Duck Mountains, which the Duck Mountains have deer. I mean, it's it's whitetail country. It's not so far north that it's not whitetail country. But so all all this ground up here is split up into sections. All the roads are square you know, they're, square they're mile checkerboard, square mile checkerboard, mm-hmm. and you'll go through whole sections of ground that are 100% cleared, basically, for fields. And they're growing, they're growing buckwheat, canola, some soybeans, and wheat primarily. That's the, that's the main thing, mainly canola. Tom says the cash crop up here in southern Manitoba is canola, and these deer eat that canola when it's growing in the summertime. After it's harvested, there's not much there, but there's some seed that germinates if it gets warm and there's some stuff growing. But what you keyed in on yesterday was soybeans. But so, so there's these big sections of agriculture, but a lot of the sections have this timberland on them, whether it's a creek or whether it's a draw or something that's holding deer. And Tom's got a bunch of what he calls bush. So he's got ag land and he's got bush land, and that's why he's got so many deer. And he's got alfalfa, and he he keeps these deer in good alfalfa. And there's a lot of woodlots in those agriculture. Right, right. Which holds a lot of deer in a small area. Yeah, yeah. Fence rows are grown up from the travel travel corridors from section to section, cross sections. Yeah. Where sections stop. The boundary, a lot of them's grown up. Yeah. Just give them. We looked at property today. Two or three miles in, just crop country. And he was talking about the bear and the deer and the elk. It right, right in the ag land. Right in the ag land. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and that's. Showing, a, me di- showing me different places where the elk, different herds of elk were deer and yeah. bear. Traveling those little corridors. Fence rows, wow. section property lines. So what's amazing up. about this place is that he's got white-tailed deer, good white-tailed deer. He's got elk, big elk. He's got moose, and he's got black bear. You saw a black bear on your first morning. First morning. White-tailed hunting. First morning out. Prettiest bear I've ever seen. <laughs> you were surprised, weren't you? I couldn't wait. To, I didn't know that there was bear. Right. You know, See, back a, home there wouldn't be bear in ag land. Looking like over this. a crop field. Yeah. And just a right away, between the right away and and look up and see something coming down the right away and it uh, color faced bear. Beautiful bear. Right after you had a white tailed deer walk right underneath right your under, blind. Right under me. Yeah. Yeah. Looked up the right away and. A bear come down the road. 
color phase. So Tom's been telling us all week as well that three weeks ago they killed a bull elk out of the exact, exact stand. Exact stand. That you saw the bear in, yeah. that you saw the deer in. The deer in. So they, Southern Manitoba has a good herd of elk, and they only allow residents to hunt those elk. So no non-residents can hunt elk, and it's a draw system. And they give away in this region, I think he said, just a handful of tags. But somebody, they, they kill elk on this farm every year because what I think what happens is, is it's a small enough pool of people that are putting in that whoever gets a tag, it seems like ends up knowing Tom and Tom invites him out to hunt <laughs> and end up killing an elk on his place. Yeah, Why, he told me his son, well, his son's buddy killed, had a tag, killed an elk, and they were skinning the elk after they'd seen some white-tailed deer in the field. While they're skinning the elk in the soybean field, a moose pops out. Do you remember yeah. him saying yeah. that? Yeah. So this is an incredible place, incredible diversity. I mean, you just... I certainly didn't expect it in Manitoba. I had and, no idea that we would see that kind of uh, moose sign, scrapes, brubs. Yeah, yeah. Trees, actual trees. Uh, moose sign, that, and white-tailed deer. Yeah. Yeah, where we're hunting, it's hard to distinguish what, I mean, the the height of the rubs is everything. I mean, you see scratch trees up six seven feet you know it's an elk or a moose but at the same time there was a rub yesterday that we were walking through this bush and tom said that's a whitetail rub and i looked it over and there was some rakes on the you know, rakes on it about four feet off the ground and i was i was like man i don't know if it's an elk or a deer because the <laughs> deer are huge too yeah oh they are yeah so to talk about the caliber of deer that were hunting up here last year my father-in-law, who's who's here with us now, Steve Schultz, we came up here and to give a real short synopsis, within two days of hunting, I was bow hunting. He was hunting with a muzzleloader. Within two days of hunting, I had taken 152-inch 10-point. I mean, just classic, heavy-horned, dark, ivory-tipped, just beautiful Canadian deer. Picture-perfect bow. With, a, with the bow. And Steve's gun had misfired. His muzzleloader misfired on a, sure enough, 150-inch, 10-point, dark-horned head. I mean, just classic Canadian stuff. And so, you know, Tom will tell you, Tom has a 208-inch buck hanging on the wall at his house that he killed in the 1980s. And it was kind of when Canada was still a sleeper destination for whitetails. They didn't trophy hunt whitetails up here. I mean, they 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 meat hunted whitetails, and basically there was a sweet spot of about twenty years between the mid '80s and probably the early 2000s when Canada was just unreal for monster whitetails. And Can you Tom's, imagine those days? From yeah, the, from the shedders we found in the, or he showed us from those yeah. days. Yeah, in that kill. That would be the one to quit on if you ever thought about it. Just incredible. Unbelievable. Yeah. Those sheds were unreal. He's had them stacked up out in his barn, stacked up in the yard, stacked the up in different places. The handed pl- to me, I couldn't reach around it. Mm-hmm. At the head. Incredible. 
Our deer don't have that much room on their head for that kind of horn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you notice how much bigger the heads are up here? Well, I mean, they're bigger <laughs> deer. They're white-tailed deer, but all the nutrition and... They look like donkeys. They just, it's unreal. Yeah. The size of the deer. Yeah. Well, Tom was real honest with us when we when I first started talking to him about coming up here. Is is he said that they really just don't have the two hundred inch deer like they used to. Not to say that there couldn't be one here. Oh, there's no doubt they could be here, but they're just not here. And I, and and after two years of talking with Tom, I fi- I finally kind of peeled it out of him what he thinks has happened. And and he says that basically there's just more people hunting up here now, and there's in the media. The whitetail, the whitetail hype of America has reached Canada. Mm-hmm. So a lot of resident hunters are now, they're you know they're hunting they're hunting big deer, and so basically to get those kind of deer, you gotta you gotta get a six, seven, eight year old deer to get deer like that. And these deer in ag ag areas like this that have tons of food, they can live that long. I mean they really can. I don't think our mountain deer do. No. But so basically, these deer just aren't. There was just nobody hunting them across the, you know, landscape level across Canada. There was just a few percentage of people trophy hunting whitetails during that period of time. They were killing so so when people started doing it, they started killing some huge deer. Russell Thornberry out of Alabama, I believe he's from Alabama, was one of the first guys that started coming up to Canada and writing stories for North American Whitetail and Buckmasters and all this, and and the secret was out. Well. Today, Canada is still exceptional. I mean, we did real good last year. And then, but this year has been tougher. And it's been tougher because of weather. So we've been in camp now for, this is the, well, for three and a half days. We've hunted for three and a half days. And uh, Steve took a buck on the first day. And you took a buck on the second day. And, uh but the weather, it's been warmer up here. Last year, the high temperatures were just barely reaching freezing. And so the deer were hammering this alfalfa. And, I mean, we were seeing mature bucks on alfalfa often. This year, when we, when we got here the first day, it was 48 degrees. Uh, it has now cooled off, and it's, it's cooler. The high temperature today was like 33, 34 degrees. But still, the deer just aren't on that super heavy feeding pattern. And I was getting around at the beginning of this thing, James, to say that the rut is different here. This, these far north places like this, the whitetail, the rut is just compressed so much that I think most of the breeding happens, you know, probably between November the 12th and November the 20th, just about like everywhere. But, man, they're not even chasing. It's going to be right behind our hunt. I'm afraid. Yeah. I think it's building up. Seen a little yeah. activity yesterday. Buck shoving and showing signs of it. And yeah. And the weather changes. The weather's the weather. It's going to change. I think uh, the next week or ten days is going to be the. It will be good. And it's the time that we won't be here. Yeah. Well, see, yesterday we got the does. And it's just, I mean, we found the does, and if you find the does this time of year, you'll find the bucks. 
And it's just almost to that point that we see signs starting, but it's not developed enough. It's going to help us right now. Right. We're working to try to get ahead of a boat. Yeah, exactly. It's building. Yeah. And they're here. Yeah. Two days ago, I had a mature buck bed, bedded down at 65 and 70 yards. Could not get him to do anything when I was grunting at him. I mean, he he didn't want anything to do with it. Mm-hmm. I mean, so that was kind of a telltale sign that they're just not that into it. Back home, if you could have seen a buck and grunted at him, he he'd probably him respond on, to you. He would have got on his feet. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Yeah. It's amazing how much it changes and how little it takes to change it. A cold snap would come in, or a cool snap, warm it back up, put it off a few days at home. But up here, we've got the right temperature for it. To right. Ideal. Chance of snow tomorrow. Chance of snow. Yep. So, tell me about yesterday. We got in there. We dropped you off about probably 3 o'clock. Cut bean field. The bean field, I'll, I'll give a context. The, the bean field had been cut in the last two weeks, but they'd done an insurance claim on this bean field because the elk had tore it up. So these, these, bean, these big farmers up here buy insurance policies on their crop. If there's some natural disaster that destroys the crop, they make an insurance claim, and they get paid some percentage of what the crop's value would have been. And So the elk damaged the crop. Yeah. Yeah. So by that, they didn't pick the beans, the lower beans, so they have beans all over the field. So when they harvested it, they harvested it at an odd time, I guess, and bean, the beans shattered, and so there's just beans all over this field. But the lower lower beans is the one that's on the field, according yeah. to the guys who was talking about it. That, oh, okay. That it wasn't, they wasn't picking them up. Or I don't know how it works, but yeah. therefore they've got all the beans. He told, I don't remember the figures of how many bushels they'd lost from not being able to pick them. Mm. And that's what's on the ground now, and that's what the deer are on. And they were on the field early, late, some middle of the day. So you went in there yesterday, and what happened? Well, it was just everybody was scratching their heads on where to pet people and what to hunt. What they hunt. It's more of a trial and error from the different fields that they'd cut and different cuts that they'd had. And what's the name of the the one that you killed in last year? The field. Yeah. I don't know. I don't guess it has a name. Not the name of the crop. Oh, canola. 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 Yeah, yeah. And this one just happened to be a bean field. And then there's soybeans, the alfalfa. So all these fields has been cut, and that's just prime deer food. The one I said in happened to be the bean field. 
with a shooting track on it and deer in it. Um, 350 yards across one way and almost 300 the other way. Uh, granted, I had a lone gun that would shoot across me. Yeah, I smoked pole, but the activity in there early, late, whenever you're. So the first deer you saw in there, you saw a deer early, didn't you? Yesterday, yeah, I saw. Saw three year yesterday, uh, bucks. Uh, young bucks, year and a half old bucks. Little fork horns, little three points. Matter of fact, uh, yesterday was the day I didn't see any does. It was all up. Mm. Um, they, uh, no, there was does in the far, far Back corner. in the far other field. Far northeast corner. There was does out there. Yeah. And it was later on when the bigger deer come out in the same area that fed in our direction, in that direction that we are. Be on the east side. Seemed like they lost more beans down through there than a lot in the field, and that's what they were doing: picking beans. Yeah. So that the deer, you saw deer throughout the afternoon, but right at dark you'd packed up all your gear, and were thought the evening was over. And then, yeah, I was packing my provisions and my backpack for getting a truck and looked out the side window and seen dark deer coming so I unpacked real quick well I didn't have anything but my, um, range finder and my binoculars and they were coming close and I had a long range rifle had mm-hmm. to get ready so Long range muzzleloader. Let me clarify that. It was it was a muzzleloader, but it's a high performance yeah, muzzleloader high that'll performance. shoot four hundred um, yards, basically. Yeah. That was a trick in its own. Yeah. To be unpacking and the deer in in range. Yeah. Uh, time was running out, and it's either did or not. And it was a big, huge body deer. They they both were were large deer. And one was behind the other, and I just couldn't. I couldn't distinguish the other one better than the one that was the closest. So you did get a look at the other one's rack. Not as good. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, two bucks pop out. One's further. One's closer. They were. They were both. Dark, but. Um, I just hardly couldn't go back after I seen enough on the ones that was yeah, lining up that could be shot. Yeah. The other one was offish a little bit. and I, uh, You just time, made up your mind. You saw it, and you were like, I'm going to shoot that deer. Well, I'd, I'd made my mind up on both of them. I just didn't know which one in the situation I was in, how much time they're going to have to get down to where I'm at. Um running out of time and they're you know, I, I didn't get to pick and choose I got the one that offered me the good shot and was pleased with the size of him and also to know that there's another one there yeah uh, and 
I don't know that I didn't heal the smaller one. Right, right. I don't know that I'd heal the bigger one. It just uh, it, it was just a mature the animal. Option I had, I had to take. Yeah. Last light had to take, take or not take, and I chose to take, <laughs> and it paid off. Uh, <laughs> and a really nice. Well, it's the nicest white tail I've ever killed. Um, picture perfect. Um, I thought it. I thought it had a little more length, a little height, but all that size of him made it look smaller. So. Yeah. Well, I'm tickled to deer. Yeah. Um, so this deer. When you're running out of light, and you're nervous with the muzzleloader. You know, because you don't want to cripple the deer. You want to be to the point when it's ready to pull the trigger. And I debated and I debated and I was running out of time to debate. <laughs> and he offered me a good turn and gave me an offer. So I took it and I felt good about it. So with a borrowed rifle. Yeah. 120, 130 yards. 130, 130 yards. 130 yards. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the deer, so we, we pick James up, and he says, I'm, I'm giving him some, I, I'm asking him to put the muzzleloader in a certain place, long story, and he goes, well, it's unloaded, basically is what he said. <laughs> the gun is unloaded. And I said, what did you shoot? He shot Anyway, we went over, recovered the deer really easily, and it was a super nice eight-point, big, huge, biggest body deer that I've ever laid my hands on. And we came back to Tom's. We actually weighed the deer, and the deer weighed 250 pounds on the dime. It didn't weigh 249 pounds. It didn't weigh 251 pounds. It was amazing. It weighed 250 pounds exactly. So we know now what a 250-pound buck looks like. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, I mean, it's 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 That's big. It. He had unreal fat reserves on him. Just a classic Canadian buck, good mass out on the main beams. And we'll post a picture in the show notes of, of the deer, James with the deer. So it was an incredible, incredible hunt. And, I uh, knew when, you know, when I first seen him that this that's above average deer from what I've been seeing. Right. You know, we hadn't been here but a couple of evenings hunting. Uh, and they said you'd know it when you seen one. Yeah, yeah. And I think I knew it when I seen it. You knew what you wanted. That that was it. Well, that's the main thing is you just, you knew what it was and you took it. And uh, it's been it's been tougher. You know, like I said earlier, it was it's been a tougher hunt. The deer aren't keying on the feet as much. And I'm still hunting. So I've hunted for now for three and a half days, and I have I had a shooter buck in range, and I was bow hunting, had a, a actually a five by seven buck within seventy five yards that I never could do anything with, and I've hunted him several days. I've hunted some other places, and I think now I'm gonna just throw in the towel on the bow hunt, which I hate to do, but I'm gonna do it, and I'm probably just gonna use Steve's long range muzzleloader and hunt the rest of the week because i'm the only one in camp that's got a tag left so james and steve longer range or you want to let it cool off and maybe come back um depending on what you 
on what you find? Or are you giving up on? Man, I'm just going to hunt the beans tomorrow, just where you killed your deer. I'm going to go to the beans. Uh, and just are you, are you going to see if there's any activity before you give it up? As far as going back to where you're laying down deer? I've sat in there three times, and I've seen one deer. You know? So I, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of torn on what to do on that. Uh, maybe give it one more sit because I just feel like that deer's going to come back through there. But but I'm going to – I'll hunt the beans tomorrow and see what happens. But With the rifle? With the, with the muzzleloader. Down yeah. where I've – Yeah, where you were. Yeah, going to try it. Well, there was a good buck with him that night. Right. Uh, close with him. I couldn't compare the racks, but they both had racks. Yeah. And they were buddy system. I mean, they were together. Um, so I take it that he would be a shooter, I would suspect. Yeah. Big-bodied, mature you, animal. You couldn't tell the well the part. Maybe we'll get a look at him tomorrow. And the way the light was facing, the one that was closest to me, give me enough light to give me a broadside shot. And yeah, it was it was the only shot I was going to get because the light was fading. Yeah, um, and it could have been the deer that went through the field today. Yeah, could have been, but. All the bucks I seen today had horns. All the deer, all the deer I seen today were bucks. Yeah. And you got the range, and they got the food there. If they find it there, it's, yeah, there's peas all over them. Yeah. On the ground. Well, so I think this is a perfect place to talk about hunting back home, and I I want to give a little context for James and I. So James. James is from the town that I grew up in, in the Washita Mountains of Western Arkansas. And I really didn't know James growing up. I, I've only lived in that town for till I was 18 and ended up going to college and left and stuff. But but James is a long-time resident of Mena, Arkansas. And, uh, and he lives out in a little community away from Mena, that's pretty much just a really rural community. He was born and raised out there. His family's from out there. And um, he's lived there ever since he was a kid. And this area is surrounded by a lot of public land, a lot of national forest, a lot of rough, just mountain country. And I met James. You know, my dad knew of you all those years we lived in Mena. I at different times I said, Dad, did you know James back when I was a kid? And he was like, yeah, I always knew there was a real good deer hunter out there, you know, uh, out there at Shady. He and caught, uh, he, he knew who you a, were. He caught me at the bank a couple of times. And yeah. Had a few <laughs> words. Yeah. And well. Sometime when you have time, let's uh, have a talk. Talk some deer. We never, we didn't get to, but. Yeah. We always said our howdy do's and how's the deer hunting. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. You know, I got a lot of my, I think, love for kind of diving into old mountain hunters from my dad. I remember as a kid going out to different places. One of dad's 
my dad was a banker. One of his customers would have killed a big buck. And I remember as a kid driving way out to Opal to just some, I mean, just a rough country place and look, going in the back room of some barn and the guy pulling a big deer head out of a freezer. And, I mean, it was just unreal as a little kid. And so I always had this appreciation for these mountain hunters. And my dad would always be like, son, that's a, those are good hunters. I mean, we hunted kind of the more – we didn't really hunt the mountains because we hunted south of Mina down in kind of the pine country where there were more deer. I won't say it was easier hunting, but there was definitely more deer. And But guys like you were hunting the mountains. So anyway, I met you, James, because – a guy told me, he said, you need to go meet James Lawrence and Shady. And this was a decade ago now, just about, <laughs> almost. And uh, because I'd started this regional magazine at the time, I was doing a magazine called the Arkansas Bear and Buck Journal. And so I came out to your house, just knocked on the door, never met you. And we started a, a friendship that's lasted for a while. And we've done a lot of stuff together now. Oh, yeah. We're bait bears every year just about since then we've baited bears together and we've been to canada to get together another time i look forward to it yeah man oh geez that's a whole nother podcast talking about me and james's bear hunting excursions in arkansas and oklahoma yeah but man the first time i met you james you took me out to your shop and i don't know how many deer heads were on not not mounted deer just skulls, just horns on the wall. I don't know. Better part of 40 or 50. I don't know. There's that or more. More. Yeah. I think there's up in the 60s, 70s probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some hanging on the back porch. That's right. Not counting the ones on the back porch. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. And So there's all these deer. And, man, you can walk into a trophy room and see a bunch of deer that are killed in the Midwest or something or not taking anything away from the Midwest, but. I knew when I saw these deer, every one of them was earned. I mean, earned the hard way. Because yeah. these mountains, there's not a tougher place. I, I don't think there's a, now there may be places as tough, but I don't think there's a tougher place to hunt mature whitetail bucks than the Washita Mountains on public land in Arkansas. I mean, there's just not a, I don't know how it could be any tougher, unless not you were just you in a place where there weren't whitetail deer. Not if, you're, <laughs> not if you're doing right. It's a hard place to do. And you... That day, the first day I met you, I asked you about a buck that wasn't even mounted. It wasn't mounted. It was just horns on the wall, and it was the biggest set of horns. And I said, man, tell me about that rack. And you kind of paused, and you said, I killed that deer when I was, how old were you, 14 or 12? 13 or 14. You said, I killed that deer when I was 13 years old. And I pried the story out of you pride it out of you and uh and you told me a story that just blew my mind which i ended up writing an article about in the inaugural issue of the arkansas bear and buck journal and the story was is that you had as a young man had found these sheds i'm torn if i should let you tell it or or if if i could give a synopsis because i still want to go to your wilderness hunting but i mean Give just a short version of that story. Just finding the sheds and stuff. Well, I've done a lot of turkey hunting when I was that age. Turkey hunting. Squirrel hunting that age. 
and it's going up the road and living with my uncle. There you go. And just traveling up the roads and give me a 22 and squirrel season's open time of year and I was all the places I could be and one day I was just on the way home and looked over the fence and I spied a, a shedder the first one and I know the people so I crawled through and picked it up and it was one of the the deer that I had seen and scouted around a little bit more and found the other one that got me started for that size of a deer and showed it to everybody made a big deal out of it my folks was my dad grandparents they they didn't have any dogs but over the mountain their family do so they would go over there and run deer with dogs and I stayed around the place and hunted but uh around the place with my, my deer rifle and next year I found another shed close by in the fields and they didn't think too much about that so the third field or the third year I had a little better equipment and I was a little bit bigger to I can go further and do stuff and I stayed home and in a stand and went home to eat lunch and on the way back home was probably three city blocks from where I was stand was inside of the house. I happened to see that buck's horns out in the field, laying against a pine tree, hid. And I went around, got on my deer stand to wait the rest of the day, and kept thinking about that so I went down and crossed into the fence and started down to him and there was a doe field of sage grass and briars it had grown up doe run out and I was slipping and making as little noise as I could and another deer jumped up and when that deer jumped up the big one was laying over by a pine tree not far from me and he didn't get up he just stood up on his pulled up on his front feet and looked around and I was carrying a 30-30 lever action and I gave him a neck shot which I hated to do and he got up on his front feet and I gave him another one so he went down in his bed and that was uh that was a deer I'd had the shedders for the two years. <laughs> and I knew they were, in, I'd find them in the place inside of the road. The bed was inside of the road. Man. They weren't looking. We looked for that kind of stuff, you and I. And I did from the road. Yeah. Uh, but when I went up for dinner that day, just up on the hill from this field, I, I was looking down there and I was seeing deer does in the field but when I went back to my stand I carried my gun down the road and I remember the people that stopped to get the information 
dog hunters. Won't know if I'd found any of their dogs. And I was standing on the driver's side, talking to him. His name was Dindon Allen Gwynn, Dindon Gwynn's dad. They've been hunting on Brushy Creek, which is a couple of miles over the mountain. But unbeknownst to them, while I was talking to them, I looked across into the field where I'd been hunting, and I could see, I could see horn tines sticking up <laughs> in the briars. So, so this is going back. You're telling now the longer version. So y- you said you saw this buck before you went and got in the stand. You're standing on the side of the road talking to the dog hunters, mm-hmm. and you see the deer while you're talking while to I'm these talking hunters. To <laughs> I can see the tines. 13 or 14 years yeah, old. I can see the tines out there by that pine tree just tinkling up and moving a little bit. And I'm kind of needing him to go. <laughs> and he did, but I couldn't walk out there. I had to go to get in my stand, which is just a little hill there. I need to surround. I couldn't go that way. I need to go behind him to where I, my stand was. And even after seeing that horn, I, making myself, I didn't really see it. Finally con- convinced myself that I did. So I started easing down there with my little 30 and get across the fence mm. behind him. Mm-hmm. Just get over the fence. And up jumps a doe and runs out in the field. Well, I knew I blew that. And she done her thing, and another one got up just a little bit further out. And when she did, the buck was over here laying against a pine tree. About just like bigger. you saw from the road. Yep. Right. Exactly where I seen it from the road. I'll be darned. But you and weren't fully convinced it was a deer at first. Is that no, right? No. You just thought you saw thought, a horn. I, thought I could see horns. And you went back to the stand and then got to thinking about it, came back, and that's when you shot him twice with the lever action. And so... That was horns. To summarize that, you found three years of sheds from 19... I think we figured out, James, it was from 1959 to 1962. So, like, like, the first year you found a shed was in, like, 1959... You found him again in 1960, found him again in 1961, and you killed the deer in 1962 when you were 14. I think that's the way it lined up. And you had matching sets for three years. Mm -hmm. And now, if you lived in Iowa in 2018, that might not be that incredible of a story. But this was the Washita Mountains in the late 1950s, early 1960s. There weren't deer. No. I mean, it, it was a big deal to kill a deer back in those days and then the other side of the story too is that james james family ran do- deer with dogs and and he just didn't like hunting that way he never did he never never wanted to hunt that way he liked to still hunt slip hunt stand hunt and so his family would go off dog hunting and he would stay and hunt by himself and so you killed this deer and i haven't even said how big the deer was we didn't you a, a tape was nary a laid on that rack until I showed up at your house that first day. Nope. We didn't even know each other, but we started talking and I bet we talked for three hours that day. Yeah, and I never. said I said, after you told me that story, 
And I said, do you have the shed horns? And you're like, yeah, they're right there. And I say, man, we got to score that deer. I want to see, see how big that deer is. Not that it mattered at all after 50 years, but the deer scored 160 inches that you killed. And in the Washita Mountains, that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. And then what is unbelievable is that the sheds from the previous year with an estimated inside spread of whatever we said it was, you know, mm-hmm. 17 inches or 18 inches, would have scored 170 inches. So the deer was actually going downhill. downhill. Yeah. The year before, he was bigger. Mm-hmm. And so, so that like ignited this fire in you for whitetails and for hunting there in the mountains around home and uh and so this 14 year old boy had killed this huge deer and found all these sheds and that's what started it for you yeah it basically was because they didn't want it advertised from probably the way i'd started afraid their names would be brought up or used in it because they didn't my uncle was a backer, and my dad and folks, eh? and grandmother. It's her brothers that had the dogs, and it's like a weekend deer hunt for them to all get out and go. And I don't, I don't want to go. Well, you don't have to go. I said, I can hunt here. Nobody. I said, we can hunt here. Nobody want to hunt there because I yeah. didn't have any dogs. But yeah, I never ever not found deer to hunt just yeah you know the deer when he start running with dogs over around our house this little growed up along the houses yards gardens i could jump deer and those little growed up and did they'd run the dogs they'd lose the dogs the deers would go to the house in their thickets or yard fences or the field fences where it's thick. Yeah. And then I'd just be poking around and I was finding deer all the time. <laughs> so you figured, I think the point of that, James, is you figured out how to kill deer. I mean, and that's that's what you did throughout your whole hunting career and are still doing it. And I've yet to say this to you turned 70 years old when? The 24th of November. Okay. 27th so you're, of November. You're a month away yeah. from being 70 years old. Yeah. And um, so on that same day, when I first met you 10 years ago or whenever it was, um, you talked to me about hunting back in the wilderness. And uh, when I say the word wilderness, I'm using that term literally. Back in the late ni- early 1980s, late 1970s, there was a congressional act that was passed that allowed for pu- a lot of public land to be made into federally designated wilderness. And James, we won't say the name of the wilderness, but there's about 11 wilderness areas in Arkansas that are restricted by the federal government for access basically the only way to go in there is by foot or by horseback i mean that's pretty much it i'm pretty sure the little sign on that wilderness area says no hand gliders bicycles any wheeled vehicles i mean you pretty much walk in there or you can ride an equine animal in there and so 
there all these wilderness areas started being made and, and I think they designated eleven wilderness areas in Arkansas. And now you were in and so that probably probably that wilderness was for sure in the maybe even mid seventies. Do you remember when it became a wilderness? No, I don't. Uh, let's just say mid seventies. I don't know it when it was. Probably would be that area. And so early to mid seventies. You started hunting the wilderness. Why? Why did? Why were you drawn to the wilderness? I don't. Um, just always wanted to get away. Uh, had an old fellow up by Mitchell Cogburn that whittled all the time. And kept telling me about that mountain and where they used to cut stay boats and how they'd drag them off and how open some of the woods was. When you get in the ridges, you can see three or four ridges ahead of you. Mm. It wasn't a thick grove of hardwood. They were taking out big oak for stay boats, for making barrels. Uh, and some of them, of course, it was too big, but that's what fascinated me started with, and he kept talking about the redwoods on it, where everything grows. Bear wallers in the Richwoods, that's where I that's where I was wanting to go hunting, so that's So they they that, talked about the Richwoods. And I, the Richwoods is what I was you know, I didn't see what the Richwoods are. And at that time there had an old sawdust pile up there it's about halfway through that trail. Five miles in. It's about five miles in. We'd hike in there, and we'd usually make camp in one of those hollers. We never camped right on the trail. Um, camped down in one of the hollers. And then we would go up on the mountain, on the Porter Mountain. Uh, from where we'd camp, a little hard to get started, but once you, you get over the first little waterfalls and stuff, it starts easing up. And the further you go, the, it's just... Uh, it's just like a jungle up there. Those, I don't know the names of the big leaves. Swamp magnolias, what some people call them. And dark in there. Yeah. Uh, 40, 50 feet on a walnut tree. A walnut tree. Hmm. Didn't expect a walnut tree being there. Um, the, oh, the wild hickory trees, the the big uh, gum trees that's in there. Picture my wife holding one, which we'd had a sawmill at the house. And then maybe 40, 50 foot to the first limb and have a big old grapevine on it that, you know, if, to relate what you could do with it, I could make four befores out of it in a sawmill. And this is just a grapevine going on. Mm. And all, of, of all trees, the... The walnuts, a lot of those, a lot just huge oak trees. It's just had it <clears throat> up from the river. The first ledge, it kind of made a bench, kind of flat, and it had water running out. There was hog wallers, bear wallers, swamp magnolias. It's got them real pretty blooms on them. Uh, and all the wildlife went with it. It's 
is rich. Hmm. So the trees were just huge. I've heard you talk about it. I mean, just like it was just it was like going into a, a virgin forest. It's it, like it untouched. This is as close as it could get today to our area. Yeah. Me and your wife, me and you and your wife could not hug some of those big in touch. Yeah. Um, that's in the rainforest. The, uh, I think it rainforest, but they call it Richwoods. The Richwoods. The Richwoods. Richwoods. So it's that's, just, that's, but it wasn't everywhere. It was just this section. It's just a big section in that mountain. It had springs running out of it. it had plenty of water. Uh, and there was like benches in it. When you get off, coming up the first bench, it just it flattens out for 30 yards maybe in places for a long stretch of the mountain. And then you'd go up a little bit and it'd be a, just kind of stair steps of benches. And then there would be one big one that were tied on to the mountain, and they'd be hog wallers and all kinds of blooming, beautiful plants. And it was just a special place. Just, it was just a special place. You know, when I was a kid, I used to hear people, or at some point I heard someone talk about the Richwoods and say that there was a theory that the Richwoods was an, was a ancient pigeon roost back when we had passenger pigeons have you heard you ever heard anybody say that no okay so you know a hundred years ago at some point in the last hundred years passenger pigeons went extinct in north america they the last one died and there used to be flocks of millions and millions of passenger pigeons and they flocked up and they would fly south as i understood it and somebody th- and I don't I don't think it holds water, but somebody said that they think that soil in that area was so rich because it was a historical pigeon roost. roost. Pigeon yeah, roost. I, I I don't know, I don't know. Well, but just to hear you talk about the be a, it could be an access to the fertilizer if there was enough pigeons, and I can see where it could be. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what. I really don't know what made it so plush and so the timber to be so big. Yeah. Uh, it's just, uh, it was just a place I'd like for everybody that I've known to see at when it was at that point. Yeah. So you, so was it Rooster Cogburn that told you about it? Or Rooster's dad or something? No, it's been, it's been. Uh, you mentioned one of the Cogburns that told you about it. John Cogburn, he used to go up there with me. We Okay, okay. We didn't take many provisions and we might be hog hunting and we just couldn't make it home. So we'd just get down in the ride holler and roll up and leave and spend the night. <laughs> Dogs didn't come back or whatever. And next morning we get up and. We had stashes along ever so often that we could go to and have a pen or something that we could make some coffee in. Every time we camped, we would leave something. So this was way back before people were, like today when we do a wilderness camp, I mean, we've got like 
jet boils and these little lightweight burners that we bring stuff and we've got dehydrated food and mountain house meals and all these power bars and you know all this like stuff and that is what blew my mind hearing you tell stories of how y'all used to camp i mean a lot of times you went in on foot but then you started taking horses in there or a single horse all the foot traffic early days was uh, pretty crude we basically in there deer hunting and and just survival mode for a day or two. You know, just not taking your provisions, what when sticking in your pants or John's overalls. You um, wouldn't even carry a backpack. Not backpack. What I call a backpack today, I'd have something tied on. It might be a bed roll with something rolled up in it, just tied around my waist or over my shoulder. It wasn't. Wasn't the backpack. Wasn't the backpack that you see today. Just how would you you drink water just out of the creek? Most of the time, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't carry water with you. No, the car, water's too heavy. Yeah. We, but we, you carried a lot knew, of canned we, goods back yeah, then. We, we knew different springs and stuff that we thought was fresh water instead of out of the creek itself. Yeah. yeah. And so you just rough it for. Two days, carry some canned goods. They would always carry the bottom screen on a refrigerator. Nobody wants them. And we had those pretty much tied up around the creek on every crossing. Had it tied up on the side where we want to build a fire. We could build a fire and set that on two or three rocks and have a set a pot on it. Whatever. Hmm. So you were going back in five, six miles. I know you mm-hmm. camped at the five mile, mm-hmm. five miles from where you parked, and then yeah, we camped there at five mile there with a spring, not spring salt, but spot. Used to hide a lot of our, our cooking utensils and extra. Extra canned goods and sawdust pile, and then usually that winter we'll be back, and it'd be easy access for have a snack up there. We'd what kind of what would you bring? Well, just beans and just staples of what you can make stuff with. Yeah, you know, whatever you, canned goods you can come up with, we can, it'd be tasty. And then, but you wouldn't just stay for a day or two. There were. You once stayed back in there for nine days by yourself. I did. Yeah. How, tell me how you do that. Now, did you take a horse with you when no, you did I that? I didn't have a horse then. Um, that's basically the deciding point of a horse. I just, over time, it stopped the sawdust pile with stuff that I needed. And my wife, we'd camp up there. And, any, and when we camped, she always had stuff to make stuff with. Yeah. Ingredients. I had a bowl of beans or whatever. You just open it and took it or or not and she'd make stuff when she was up there and accumulated some dishes, some pots and pans and So placed. you had a stash up there. We had a good stash that covered <laughs> up in that sawdust pile. Uh uh-huh. 
And cool. now that sawdust pile is from logging from when? There should be a mill up there when they would get the logs down. Before it was a wilderness area, there was yeah. an old mill back in there. Yeah. From, I mean, so how was that sawdust? Like 50, 60 years old? Oh, yeah, that longer probably. Really? So pile. it didn't rot? No, it eventually did. They say you can't find it now, but it was pretty good stash when I was. It'd be seven or eight foot tall. Oh, wow. It'd come down. I mean, it all settled down all the time. You just pick your undisturbed spot and dig out your pretty good hole in there, and it's pretty good insulation, and just make do with whatever we had, if it's a deer hide or whatever, but, or canvas or whatever. Yeah. But they got in there and stole everything at pretty close to the last time. Oh, really? Somebody you know, took We might it. have a can of peaches or... Just all stuff we you always, when you go in there, I'd always have something to put in the stash. Extra. <laughs> and so Gene would go with you at different times. You told me yesterday, you said you'd go off hunting and you'd come back to camp and Gene would have made a gourmet meal for you. You wouldn't believe what she could put together and it just, you know, you'd invite anybody to sit in. I'm like, you know, come in and have Man, that's really, when you told me that, that was kind of a neat image for me, knowing you and Gene, just y'all and your, uh, you'd have been in your 30s. Yeah. You know, y'all in your 30s, five miles back in the wilderness, camping together, hunting. I mean, that's pretty cool. We started one night, I had a bright idea to go up to that divide on Sugar Creek, so she had a little pinto, so we parked it at the baptizing hole down below Roy Rouse's, because that's the head of Short Creek, and had another bright idea of going up Sugar Creek, and did, got out, and there's a long ridge that goes up to the top. She was, she was raring to go, we get up to the top, top over it up there about where Audrey Masters camp's at and drop over and get down on Short Creek and we're just going to hunt down Short Creek back to the truck because we left our truck at Rouse's. Well, we'd go down through there we'd have it, and this was going to be live off the land. And what do you my, mean by that? You didn't bring anything? Very little precision. Provisions. provisions. <laughs> had a backpack, but we're going to have to make do. You know, We may have to cook an animal over an open fire. So, first thing that happened was a about a two-thirds grown coon was on the side of a tree. That'd be easy picking. <laughs> so, we elect, or I elected to do that. Sure enough, I got the coon and <clears throat> my granddad always told me if I shot it, I eat it so that was the main purpose so didn't have any particular way to eat that one so I prepared it had the fire built up had me some steaks up and I'd run a steak through that coon and that was going to be dinner <laughs> anybody should enjoy that <laughs> and we did we was having a good time. We was young, and 
kept the fire stoked and we ate it and survived. And the next morning, had a little backpack. Next morning, I allowed to leave pretty early to go hunting. I got out and stoked up the fire and I looked at that coon that I had so delicately prepared for our dinner and I tried to hide it from Gene because <laughs> a good vet could have probably brought that coon back. <laughs> <laughs> Chewed around on some raw coon now. Oh man. It's a wonder uh, you didn't get trichinella. It's no telling we didn't get whatever. So <laughs> anytime from a now good on, vet could have brought that coon back to life. Yep. Oh man. Anytime that you get to get time to use it, you'll get a you'll get a laugh out of her because she'll never forget it. <laughs> oh man. But I had provisions in different places that cooking stuff that I could. In other words, I didn't have to worry about that. I could just take any fast food that I could. I could find something to cook it in, whether it be skillets or or pans. So you just backpack that. The pans and silverware is what's hard to deal with. Yeah. And if you just had something to cook it in, you bound to. There's all kinds of treats you can come up with up there. Yeah. Time was hard one time, and I'd sunk a deer in the river, and I pulled it out. There's probably a gallon of uh, crawdads in it, so that was an easy meal. Crawdads. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you can't find food, that's usually a good way to get them. Yeah. Just sink some meat. Sink some Creek. meat and catch some crawdads. Bring it up slow. Bring it up slow. That's your. That's your. Yeah. Pointer for catching crawdads. Yeah, they'll be there. Bring it up slow. You put the meat out there, they'll be there. <laughs> but that hunting was so, so pleasant on uh, that Caney Creek management wilderness back before the timber died and things was good. You could ride your horse. They made a trail for you to ride on, but you could ride it where you want to. You could just ride anywhere. Just ride. You could ride over Porter Mountain from the south and down by the sawdust pile, cross and go through that divide up there on the Hannah Mountain and come down on Short Creek. Well, I got fond memories of going up there and just excited about taking a muzzleloader. That those days was, I, I just didn't need one to shoot over 35, 40 yards. You know, so never went up there a time that didn't bring a deer out. Really, when you went, when you were back in there camping and hunting, never, you'd bring one out. We never come out of season without a bear or a deer. Yeah. Yeah. Man, that's some that's some tough hunting. Well, it's not if you've done it in that part of your life and you were into it, it was it's hard work but it was it was fun work. 
What kind of places were you hunting? Hunted over on the the rich woods. <clears throat> There's just areas of local deer would scrape and run and scrape regular inside of it. It's not a natural place that you would go to look for one, but inside of that, around the where the hog wallers were at, they'd always be a place, and always were a buck scrape there. And you could relate that enough to either get the hog or or deer. Uh, move a little bit higher up, the ridges was good, the gaps. Where the ridge comes up. Makes ties saddle, into the mountain. Ties up. So the way our mountains work is we've got Washtenaw Mountains or east-west running mountains that were formed by uplift. Mm-hmm. So all these mountains run like a hogback ridge east and west. And so that's that you have these main mountains running east and west, and then you have these finger ridges that are basically eroded, like geologically. That's what described how it happened is that the, the hollows eroded out. And so there's creek, you know, drainages in these hollows, and there's these ridges that tie into these east-west ridges or, or, mm-hmm. or mountains. And where those ridges tie into the mountain, there'll be a little saddle, mm-hmm. just kind of like a little flat spot or a little dip where it, t- it tucks into the mountain. And deer going from one drainage to another will cross through that low point. Mm-hmm. Is that the way you describe it? That's it. Yeah. That's it. And so you hunted those saddles tying into the main mountains. Mm-hmm. And you still hunt that way today. I still hunt that way today when I'm down there. When I get on the good north slope, I like to hunt where the ridges tie on to the mountains. And a lot of places when you do find the drainage that comes off is um, just where it ties on to the mountain. Just They may vary up and down, but that's a good point. But Did you like hunting the south or the north side of the mountain? Well, that's. Uh, or did it make any difference? That's a tough one. A lot of time, you can just get up there and start out the, the south side of the mountain. You'll find trails and stuff up there, and what you want to listen for is rocks rolling. Hmm. And some places on the trail, I've heard rock. I mean, I've heard the deer chasing the, the bucks chasing the does, but. Hmm. That's what's going on. You hear some rocks rolling, and they make quite a bit of noise. During the rut. During the rut. Just get out there, and it, you don't have to be as careful on your your noise. Just when it gets quiet, get quiet. But noise is going on. If you need to travel, travel, because they're making a lot of noise. Yeah. But, you know, they'd be up two-thirds of the way up on the mountain, and you'll be down here in the ridges. Uh, and you just follow them because they will come off. And you just stay with them as tight as you can. And you eventually kill a deer. Stay stay off. tied to the ridges. Yeah. Yeah. And now you like to hunt. Well, l- let me let me go back just a second. What I said about do you like a north side or south side? In these mountains with the east-west running ridges, the southern slopes of our mountains are different than the northern slopes. Yeah. 
different vegetation. They're more arid, more pine trees, more probably more open on the southern side. The north sides of these mountains are thicker. And I, I just wondered if you had any preference for where the deer were. I don't know. I think anybody arguing with me would probably win, but I really like the north side. See, I think a lot of people like the north I side. I like the north side. Oh, I get more shade and get more dark. The sun don't mess with you near as much. Get on the south side, you got rocks and briars. Sun in your eyes because you got the sun winds yeah. really in favor. Um, I don't know that there's any more traffic on the north than there is the south. I just you think there's the same amount of deer? Well, I just say I. Same amount of deer on each side. I would try. I'd try the north side. But I hear a lot of people if say I that. Knew that there was more deer on the south side. Then I'd try it. Yeah. I hadn't. I've had more success on the north side of the mountain. Yeah. North mountain. North side. There's definitely more vegetation on the north sides of mountains where we're hunting. And that in and of itself may be more feed for them, just more activity on the north sides, cooler. There's a lot of positive things. But I've also, interestingly enough, most of my hunting I'm doing on the south side. On the south side of the mountain? Yeah, but not not by choice necessarily. It's just kind of where I'm hunting, the south side is just accessible, basically. That's just kind of where I spend a lot of time. But so I just wanted to clarify that point real quick. Now I want to go back to what you said about like listening for deer rolling rocks on the top of the mountain. You're down at the bottom listening for them up there. Man, you know this, James. 90% of deer hunting, 80% of deer hunting these days is hunting deer over feed. In some way, food plots, corn piles. You're hunt- long story short, you're hunting these deer on the ground. I mean, the majority of the bucks that you've taken out of the washtals have been taken off the ground. Mm-hmm. What you call still hunting. Mm-hmm. Describe that to me a little bit. Well, it's, it's just, just different hunts. Uh, the hunts out on some of those mountains that we just talked about. Um, Started in the wilderness. Um, the activity wasn't good, on, and it's just winter huckleberries, loose rock, and deer in a rut. And game trails don't want to get high; we just stay with them low. And what I started doing, it started out to be just a, a day's hunt. And uh, Hog Creek Bottom is a little old name that. Mitchell Cogburn called a spot that the uh, bottom goes up and it's just kind of a shelf underneath, pretty low down, on Hannah Mountain. And that was my start. I'd get there and then I would get on one of those trails above it. And I would go, and there's a lot of little fingers. And I'd just start out that, uh, still hunting, not being quiet and just going out that trail that just goes out the mountain. And during the rut, you don't have to go far to you'll hear rocks rolling and stuff going on. And what it is is the 
the bucks is chasing the does. So when you can catch that, it don't take you long to take your time to get to the right trail. Uh, if they go out past you, get too far, you got time to settle up, find a place, because they'll come back. Really? At some point, yeah. So if you heard bucks chasing? All you do is just get up there and figure out a game plan. Where are they at? Most cases, they're going to be circling around, and they're up there for a reason. And a close trail to the one they're on or the one they're on. don't take you long to find it. So you'd go up there and then just sit? Yeah. Sit the rest of the day? Just sit there. They'll be back. <laughs> so you're you're moving through the timber slow. Just, now you, just back, back then, you didn't have grunt calls. Mm-hmm. You're just hunting them. Mm-hmm. You didn't have camouflage. Mm-hmm. You just had a lever action 30-30 probably. Right. And so you're just moving, watching, listening. And it's an area on that south side, there's usually enough cover. Well, not cover, food source for the deer on that side. It's just the fact that those sides of the mountains, it's real rocky. And when they travel, they they travel those trails. are just trails zigzagged all over it. And they make noise. You can keep up with them. But when there's no buck is chasing the doe, and it's not like out in the field. You can hear them. But like pasture breed, but mountain breeds all get different. They run up and down in rocks. And, I'll be done. And they, when they're in rut, the mountains is quite a rock change over there. That's, that's neat. Yep. Not a lot of people are hunting that way anymore. We're climbing up trees, sitting, you know. That's kind of the... Yeah, there's a guy told me the other day that, and you know him, I will. He was in the building supply there in Mena. Archery was bought up. I don't know how I'm doing it. Well, I just, I can't do it like I used to. Thank God you can't. <laughs> Nobody can keep up with that. said, uh, they took a good crew up on the mountain to show... They found one of my tree stands up on the mountain, and he took people up there to show what them what that large guy was, way he was hunting. <laughs> they didn't have tree stands when I was making them. Yeah. They said he's hunting up there out of a tree. You think you can kill him? A deer out of a tree? <laughs> he did. So, you were just doing whatever it took to kill deer back then. Yeah. And so we just talked about you still hunting, talked about how you hunted these saddles and stuff, but you were also hunting out of a tree. And and you told me the story yesterday. This old guy didn't like James, and and James was hunting in a spot that this old guy liked to hunt way up in the mountains, public land. Oh, yeah. And you'd, you'd made a stand out of conduit and expanded metal mm-hmm. and, and used tree climbers because you were a tree climber. I was a... Uh lineman for a cable system and we had pole hooks and we also had tree hooks because we had to go through trees so I had access to that so I didn't have any they didn't make screw in climbers right I didn't want a ladder carry a ladder up there so I put there was it no modern tree stand tree climbing equipment no at zero. all none you either carry a ladder up there or you 
I just made it where I could have straps on my back and carried it in. And then when I get there, all I had to do is bring the leg down that stopped it, poke it in, and then take the strap. I had a, actually, I got some little army little boomer, chain boomers, and had a chain on each side. And, and then when I made it, I had sharp teeth that would go into the, the tree. Built safe as could be. <laughs> uh, no safety belts ever. Yeah. Sometimes I had my main safety belt on. Would you? Yeah. I mean, while you're hunting. Well, no, I usually use my drag rope. Yeah. You'd tie yourself in back then? Yeah. Would you? Have. You were smart. Yeah. You were smart. Yeah. So you were making some tree stands and hunting. Mm -hmm. Taking conduit and a, a bender and try to make them around as, as a eight-foot can. And then get that expanded metal and... Spot welded all the way around on it and put bars on it to brace it where you wouldn't go under it. And I'd put a hinge on the same side on both sides, bend a piece of conduit down, and then go back up to hinge it out there with that weight. And I would put a spike down in that one where you could drive it in a tree to make it level. Yeah. And around a boom chain around the top. Beefed it up. Good. It worked. Yep. It showed them. So this, this older gentleman there in town mm -hmm. said you couldn't kill a deer out of a tree. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you were probably in your 30s and full of fighting vinegar. Well, he come up there one day, and and he was a, a well-known local, and he, he had a toddy for his body early in the morning, I guess, because and a smoker, and I was up in the tree before daylight, and I, I seen uh, that rosebud on the front of a cigarette down the mountain, and the closer he got, the more he coughed, I knew who it was, identified him, knew him, and I didn't say anything, because I was pretty well up in the tree, in pretty good ways, and, and, uh, Over on Shady Mountain, I can't think of the name. Lewis Divide was the name of it. Um, he come up there and sat down. I didn't say anything to him, but he kept coughing and hawking and spitting. And, and I was trying to be nice, and I didn't want to scare him, but he, I said, both of us going to sit here. One of us is going to have to be a little quieter. <laughs> He got off his stump and kind of turned around with that little thirty-thirty. I didn't know what he was going to do. So, so you're up in the tree. Yeah, just I kind of turned up. around with mine, and he went to stomping his foot and letting out some unpleasant words. <laughs> Need to let somebody else hunt around here. You hunt up here six months out of the year. <laughs> Started off down the mountain. I said, "Well, I got another tag." Anyway, he he didn't go out to, I mean, down the mountain. I seen him go up over the mountain. I was sitting there, and he jumped a six-point over on the south side, and it just happened to come down through my gap. And I shot it, put my hooks on, climbed down, put my tag on it, and climbed back up there. And 
Here he no comes. tag left. Here he comes. <laughs> Sit over there on a log for a long time. And finally come over there and said, uh, how long are you going to be here? I said, well, it's opening morning, and I have two tags. And he went to kicking rocks and spitting and <laughs> going down the mountain. So... I'd check my deer, but when I got off the mountain, the game wardens were waiting for me. Hmm. But anyway, it was his son that had went up there and seen what they looked like. Hmm. That was that was a long time ago, mid seventies, yeah. early seventies. Yeah. Yeah, mid seventies. Well, let's see. But, you know, those days in Mena, we didn't have any archery. I was always an archery freak. Yeah. Uh, and the stand was the only way I could get out of sight and get deer close. Yeah. There wasn't any stands. Yeah. So I just made some. And they, they held up good. I want to go back to something that you, you really... You didn't teach me in the sense that we went out and did it together, but your stories are what inspired me to get mules, really. Because you were packing. So there was this period of time when you were just packing back into the wilderness and stashing food. And then you started, you got a horse. And what you'd do is you'd use a pannier. You'd take, you'd take, you'd put your riding saddle on the horse, use a pannier, lead the horse into your camp. With all your gear, so by this time you had plenty. You had good. I mean, for the time you had right, gear, right. and then and then you'd ride the horse to hunt, right. to go. And I remember you telling me stories about using your saddle as a pillow, and I mean yeah. it was still rough and a big time. Oh yeah, yeah. Getting that tent with that back or the with the tent for a pillow. It, the blanket, it gets kind of smelly by the end of the ride because I tried to ride the horses every day. Yeah. But Using the saddle blanket as a pillow. Well, on the on the, on the saddle, saddle there and then put blanket over it where you'd have a... Oh, I see. So the saddle and then the saddle blanket and then that was your pillow. Yeah. yeah. And that way you got to keep them dry as possible. Man... Now, this is kind of cool for me. You you let me borrow that panniered. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, and every time I use that thing, James, I think about I think about you going back in the wilderness. So I've got this canvas panniered that I'm now using. That's that your uncle gave you back in the seventies, probably. It's still it's in good shape, other than I I have torn it twice just out of use i think it's starting to dry rot a little bit no, but i i sew i'm sewing it up with paracord so it's yeah. now got two good rips in it that i sewed up but man that thing still works like a charm we used it to carry all that bear bait up up the mountain and i use it all the time yeah we tried everything in the world we tried getting army duffel bags and putting the arms on them. we can have holders like that you know we can put them on just like a backpack and that didn't yeah. work too well, but it worked real well on tying them on the horse. You know, it gave us two ties. So 
we tied one around the saddle horn and the other two just tie them up and tie them together and then that give us a place to put us another row. So we had, we could take three and sometimes four just army duffel bags and we have just about as much provisions. Well, now those, those things will pack up pretty good. But yeah. We tried everything in the world. Yeah. Uh, but, but that ended up working pretty good for you. Yep. Yep. And now, man, there's a cool painting of you in your house of you on a horse back in the mountains. That became kind of iconic. Gene liked to ride. You liked to ride. Y'all took your horses back in there and hunted. Um, and and today, that's really a lot of what I'm doing is getting back in there, leading the mule in packing it having your camp and then riding the mule out to hunt and i i enjoy the heck out of that kind of hunting that's the best living i've ever had (laughs) in the day yeah man i packed my horse and go and stay and stay away from people i stayed in places that they wouldn't find me Um, yeah and that's that's to me what wilderness does you know in today's modern world there's a lot of people that don't like wilderness they say that it limits people it's public land but it limits access for certain people there's no roads but man there are roads everywhere there needs to be places where there are no roads and 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 this trail is it's kept cleaned out by the national forest and and they have campsites on it and that's we want you to use those. Well, I don't like to be camping the way I camp and have some of the hikers are good hikers and some of them are anti. You know, if you had a deer hanging or, you know, I mean, a number of things. Yeah. They're real good about telling you about it, so if they don't see me, they won't know that. So you hid back hid. in the woods. Yep. Uh, there's there's something about being back just away that's that's a rare human pleasure it really is isn't it and i mean i think that's the what you and i have talked it's about it's the so ultimate much. of what we can do today with the lives you live and i live there's you know it's just a that's as close as we can get yeah we can carry on the lives that we both have outside of that yeah I think there's another spot that I never have showed you that we've all, or I've all talked, brought it up that it would be worth checking out sometime down the road to see if a person couldn't do a, maybe just a, a weekender. Yeah. Friday and Saturday night and it wouldn't mess up a whole lot. And it was, um, it's been many years ago and I can't, sit here and tell you what I left on that mountain in two days I was up there. Um, we got to go in there. Uh, we got to go in there. And it may be totally different now, but I left biting deer, spook deer, all kinds of deer things. And the way the bears has expanded since then, I'd feel sure it might even be a... Hey, bear. me and you both have Arkansas bear tags, don't we? 
We don't have Oklahoma bear tags. We both killed Oklahoma bears. Yep. Well, there's one more thing I want to talk to you about before we end this. And the fur and, and so much of the iconic stories that you have that that my kids know. I mean, you you you're like an iconic guy in my family for sure. <laughs> I mean, thing that you told me and taught me how to do was how to shock pouch a deer. So before you had horses back in the wilderness, you had to you killed a deer five miles from the road. You know, today a lot of times guys are. I mean, you know, out west, you know, you'd quarter it up and you'd carry it out in quarters. That's just not what y'all did. Y'all shock pouched it. Tell me, tell me who taught you how to shock pouch, and kind of what it is. And I'm, I may throw in a few things. Well, it was uh, my grandmother's uncle, my grandmother's brother, which would be my great uncle, I guess. Um, take it back a little further. They, my grandmother had a bunch of brothers and sisters, and back in her raising, they all kind of lived together, hunted and hunted. They didn't live together, but they all hunted. That was you'd have to be invited to go hunt with these people. All family, and they used dogs. Um, and one of the one of the uncles was a little short guy, and he didn't really short man, and he just didn't really like that kind of hunting. So he let he didn't have dogs. His brothers had dogs, and I was just a, I don't know how old I was, but he invited me on a hunt, and because he's always talking to me about it. And they had their big old house that part of the family had was a hunting cabin. And he invited me to go hunting with him. Everybody else just suiting up, you know, and just jumping their trucks and going here and going there to turn the dogs loose on this mountain. And we wasn't loading up nothing but just our clothes, hunting clothes, which wasn't hunting clothes. They were the same as work clothes. And we walked across the road from where everybody had been parked and camped. And the odd part about it was he started hunting in their front yard, basically. When he stepped off of that road that's onto the bank is when he started hunting. And I've always thought that there was a buffer zone. And the first... Uh, well, Short distance, he was. He just said, "Follow me." Well, I was following him like I thought I was. How following. old were you? Now this is pretty young. A lot of times, then I'd be sitting and with my granddad when the dog was running. Uh, I'd say seven or eight. Okay, you were young. Nine. You were just a kid. Yeah, just a kid. Yeah, ten maybe. Uh, but that walking beside wasn't what he would tell me. And he he was a perfect gentleman to a kid that's wanting to learn stuff. Mm. And we got up 
up the road or up in the woods was, and we stopped and we had a, I had to listen and he had to talk. And he sharp enough to tell me how he walked, why he walked, hmm. and how he would do it. And I had to step every step that he stepped. Hmm. Yeah. Don't step on him. Travel the same speed I do and step where I step. In a period of probably a couple hours, I'd learned most of the techniques that I needed to know, you know, and just, mm. just, uh, and the guy could literally take understanding later after I talked to him about how he knew what that particular deal was. It was a doe and two yearlings. He would stop. Not get down and on his hands and knees, but he would look to see if they'd be leaves uncovered or something just kind of out of it. And that's where he traveled, and he traveled very slow. You know, his dirty took under his arm. Sometimes he'd miss. But that's my first hunting trip with that man. And he learned me more in that afternoon than I could deal with later because I'd, I, one person can't use what he told me. But when we talked, he said when he was growing up, he was a pretty old guy then. His dad, which was my grandmother's daddy, he would raise what they call slow track. And saying this as a truth, because my granddad told me in there, I've never disputed one word he said. He was walking from where I live now to where our cabin basically is but it's the old place right and found a deer track in the road and he got home and he went down to Ashgrass place and the boys loaded up their slow track dog and what I mean by that probably put a collar on him and they got their guns and they come up to that track and put that slow track dog. That slow track dog didn't make any noise, and I don't know he was collared, and I don't was on a, a lead rope. Right. But they took that deer from there to Holly Briar Road and killed it. The mm. Slow track. The dog would track it, and the fact that Raymond told me said. When that dog tracks and he tell he starts circling, the buck will go pat will come in off his trails or whatever. And when he's going to go to bed, he'll come through here and then he'll make a circle, and he'll come back to where he'll see anything in bed here where he. Okay, he where can, he can watch his back trail. He his trail. So he'll when come the dog up. Start circling. They spread out down here, and that's how they hell, they kill all the deer out. Huh. They figured that out. Huh. And that's what he was showing. So they'll circle before their bed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll be done. That, his story was he's fixing to, I think they're fixing to lay down. When I when I think about you hunting the mountains the way you do, I mean, I just see extreme patience because this is these are not, I mean, back in the wilderness where you were hunting, I mean, Maybe in a day of hunting, a real good day, you might see five deer. Yeah. I mean, on a top-notch day. Mm-hmm. Lots of days you wouldn't see a single deer. Is that right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's yeah. still the way it is down there. Yeah. 
I don't think we're giving away any secrets, whitetail secrets, because no. good luck if you want to go kill deer in the Washita yeah. Mountains. There's just not that many. But no, but, but just that. patience. Just that's what I see inside of you. Is just, you just go. You're not looking for immediate success. You're looking. I mean, you're you'll just stay with them. And oh, that reminds me. You 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 talk about the three day sit. You've told me for years that you feel like if you find good buck sign, if you'll sit there for three days from daylight till dark, you'll kill that deer. <laughs> yeah. And that's what you've that's what you've made a living by in the deer woods. You put enough time for a deer that you want, and you know anything at all about him, you can go there three days in a row. I've had some awful good success by just being stubborn. Maybe that's what I need to do here, James. On my buck over there that I saw two days ago. Yeah. What do you think? Saw him bed two days ago right there. I've now hunted him just three times. Maybe I'll just go in there and sit all day tomorrow. Is that a bad idea? Or should I go to the beans? You found any fresh in there? There's fresh tracks every time I go in there. There's fresh tracks in there from the time that you left? Not a lot, but on the trail, there's fresh tracks. I mean, I don't know if it's his. It could be a doe. But I just can't figure out why he was there. We're switching topics here. I'm taking what James's James's hunting philosophy here and applying it to today's problems because we got to figure out where I need to hunt in the morning. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, if you've got movement in there and you know the bucks in there, I think it would be a, it'd be one to think about. But I really don't know that probably any of these that you sit there and sit there three days that you wouldn't Right, any of these spots that we're hunting. The one up there with that dugout today where Steve had had luck. Yeah. Uh, There was enough tracks in there to justify knowing they're not all night tracks. Yeah. There's plenty of deer in there. There's not that kind of tracks over in the bean field, but you can see the deer over there. Yeah. Well, we'll figure that out, but man, James, I've been wanting to do this, have this conversation with you and record it for a long time, and we, we kind of just hit the high points. I want to do another podcast with you where we talk about our bear hunting um, at some point, but man, the, the way the way that you've hunted the mountains, and you know, to me, growing up down there, I always just had a ton of respect for guys that killed deer in the mountains. And um, and you kind of, maybe everybody has this, I don't know, but to me, like, what you cut your teeth on deer hunting as a kid, like when deer hunting was just this kind of fairy tale, romantic, awesome thing, you know, and it still is today, but when you're a kid, it's like your imagery of, deer hunting it's like you're really influential 
you're easily influenced. And anyway, to me, the old mountain hunter from Shady would have been like as a kid what I would have just been like, man, those are real deer hunters. And that's that's who you are. That's what you do. Well, and, I've done it so long, and the, the way I've done it, it's hard to teach somebody or kill somebody or unless they hunt with me. A few days on the steel hunt, um, they're not going to really see what I do. I'm confident in my hunting when I when I get to go. Of course, I get disgusted, but I feel like in two or three days I can figure them out. Um, most cases, if I can't, I'll go to another one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I've studied. I hadn't studied. I've just lived it. I hadn't really studied. Yeah. I've just figured out over how much pressure I can put on the deer and how little pressure I can put on the deer. <clears throat> and some of them, you might as well just go look for another one because there's some of them you can't beat them at their game. Yeah. Or somebody else has already broke the cycle by jumping him or shooting at him or something. Yeah, yeah many hunters you have to deal with in guarded spots but I uh, when season comes along and I've, I'm feeling good and feeling good about where I'm going I, uh, I put a day in you know yeah and if it's setting setting if it's not I have I have went probably a football field in eight hours before just creeping. Yeah, just you just got the feeling that something's going to move. Or there's enough sign there that you just you just read it as you go and just you know. I mean, turn around and know we're back to the truck. <laughs> there's times I get that intense that I just can't make myself move. I had that and that takes a lot of discipline. I had that over at the cabin one day. I was going to. kill a deer at a stand that I put my dad and my dad had seen it and he couldn't kill it so I got when I got to the old logging road I had some last year's hawks that I'd cut off and had them pros and I tied them to my boot for drag and I had a little bit of urine in the bottle that liquefied that I'd pour on them and I went up the ridge over on Sugar Tree Mountain, and I didn't ever do a lot of grunting, but this is when they had grunt calls, and I was going to try it. And I started grunting and slipping, just to slip as easy as I can slip, and I get up close to his stand, and he had to peer over, and I didn't see anything, but I was just doing a light there couple of times low and went through it and I was going to get close to the little saddle and go up where I could see back down the saddle and just sit on the ground. And I started up that saddle and I just kind of missed where I was going. I turned around and a buck would come up behind me. I don't know how far he'd been following me. Hmm. A big buck. Hmm. And I couldn't, couldn't get him. I wasn't going slow enough or making enough noise that he was following me up that mountain. Oh, I'll be there. Between the tanks and the... So you were just creeping. I was creeping, and he was coming up there. 
Oh, right behind him. And so what happened? Did he spook when he you yeah. turned around? Yeah. He... <laughs> but it was a learning experience. I enjoyed it as much if I killed him. Because it was a win. I did it. I whipped him. It was a win. That I win. You won. I won, yeah. He lived, but I won. <laughs> That's good. I led him up there. Well, hey, do you have any closing comments for the for the podcast about wilderness hunting? Canada hunting, deer hunting, Arkansas hunting, equine, horseback hunting. No, I just, <clears throat> it's hard to close on anything like that, Clay. I don't know how to close this one on the, this well, hunt. I've never, this is such a new experience, and it's easy to learn from it, what you can do and what you can't do. Um, trial and error. Yeah. It's not like we're going out here and trying to pull something on them. We're trying to learn. Yeah. And you've done everything I see possible. Yeah. The way you put your blinds up, your tree stands up, your, your ladder stands, your wind. You haven't done anything wrong. Yeah. It's just the right place at the right time. Yeah. I've got three days. So. Well, hey, thanks for sitting down with me James and we'll, we'll do this again it's always like hunting on a different planet from what we're used to, isn't it? <laughs> it really is. But isn't that, what, isn't that what's so cool about whitetail hunting, though, is that same whitetails we got back home are the whitetails that are here. It's just different, different hunting, different styles, bigger body deer, hopefully bigger rack deer. Well, hey, I'm going to close this out. Thanks for listening to the Bear Hunting Magazine podcast. Check out our print magazine. Do us a favor. Subscribe to Bear Hunting Magazine. Share our podcast. And check out Bear Horizon. There's a there's a video from a couple years ago that I did at James. Uh, I think it's called Bear Hunt with an Arkansas Mountain Man. And uh, it's on YouTube. But anyway, check out Bear Horizon. And hey, keep the wild places wild. That's where the bears live. The deer live there too. <laughs>